Hello everyone and welcome to the Africa Museum podcast, the podcast channel for the Royal Museum for Central Africa in Belgium. My name is Gabrielle Fenton and for this series I've been walking around the museum's labs, offices and archives to meet with scientists who work here. Each scientist had to choose one object that is somehow related to their research. It could be an object that they have worked on or with, or an object that simply carries a bit of their passion for their field. Some of these objects are on display in the museum, others belong to the nitty-gritty of everyday research. All of these objects have an interesting story, and that is what we are out to find out. So, how do archaeologists make sense of a grave and of the objects that they find inside it? What sort of bias traps do archaeologists have to avoid when they are interpreting what they see? But also, what can they learn from what they don't see? These are the sort of questions we will be looking at in this episode with Alexander Livingstone-Smith. By exploring the story behind the grave of a Central African Tutankhamun, which is 700 to 1000 years old and was found in what is now Congo. Museum podcast. So we are very lucky today to be talking with Alexander Livingstone Smith, um, who is an archaeologist here at the museum. And so you've just come back from fieldwork in in Maniema, in uh, Kasongo, Eastern uh, Congo. In Eastern Congo. So how are you today? I'm very good. Uh, a little hotter here than in Congo, actually. So um, so the object that you've chosen to talk to us about is one of the tombs that is on display here at the museum. So we were just having a look at it uh, in the museum and now we're sitting in an office to uh, talk about it and to find out his, its story. Um, so in the tomb there's a human skeleton which has quite a lot of uh, bracelets on its wrists, on its ankles. It also has a sort of... Uh, well, it has lots of jewellery and bits of uh, metal, and then there's lots of pottery around the skeleton. Um, is there anything major that I'm missing out that's in the in the tomb? No, that's about it. And um, so, could you could you start by uh, just telling us when this uh, tomb is dated back to, and also uh, who is whose skeleton is is it? Uh, The tomb is dated back to uh, a period or an archaeological culture, as we call it, um, which is called the Kisalian. And the Kisalian culture um, was was thriving in Katanga in southeastern Congo around the 10th, maybe um, between the, the 8th and the 13th century. And there's two periods in there. There is one which was called the Old Kisalian, and then there is a period called the Classic Kisalian. And the Classic Kisalian is really where that grave uh, is from. The period, yeah, the period to which it's it's attributed. And so, and whose skeleton and, might it be? And so, the skeleton. The first thing we um, we have to say is that the skeleton in the display is not a real skeleton. Okay. Um, uh, you could in fact ask why is there a skeleton because um, uh, graves are not always displayed with a f- skeleton uh, 
are in it. But um, we used that setting uh, for an exhibition previously and uh, I saw a lot of children were having a lot of fun with that. They were in awe, saying, wow, look, there's a skeleton and all that. There's a big whoa effect for children. And I like that. So uh, even though there was a, a question of outlining the deceased or showing a, a, just an image or even no uh, image of the deceased himself or herself, mm -hmm. um, we, we discussed that. And in fact, in the end, we decided to have this skeleton, with it, which is a very good imitation. We had it painted, but... Uh -huh. It's a plastic one. And so now, we're not sure whether it's a her or a he? No. Uh, okay. Then that's the real skeleton is poorly preserved. And okay. so it's very hard for us to, to know exactly if it's a, it's a boy or a girl. Okay. What we can say from what is left of the skeleton, we can say it was probably a young adult. Okay. Between 18 and 24, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, but we don't know if it's a boy or a girl. Mm -hmm. Although... Um, as we were re-examining the skeleton before the exhibition, we found that um, uh, some of the teeth were very well preserved and we hope to run a DNA test on it so we'll know a lot more about okay. that person. So that's, that's exciting. Yes. Certainly. So um, who, who found this grave, uh, who, who ex excavated this grave first and, and also where, where exactly was, like what's the, yeah, where was it found? So it was found in um, near a lake, which is called Lake Kisale, mm -hmm. uh, which gave its name to the Kisalian. Mm -hmm. uh, it's in the Upemba Depression. It's north of Lubumbashi when you are in Katanga, let's say. Okay. Uh, northeast of Kolwezi. Um, now uh, it was excavated by in during the 50s. Mm -hmm. and now it's a bit special because it, it, those were colonial times and it was excavating excavated by a Belgian guy, a very good archaeologist actually, called Nankin. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, funnily enough, at that time when he excavated, there was no radiocarbon dating. So at that time, it was very difficult to obtain uh, a real uh, date okay. for, um, for this. Uh, but in the end, later on, uh, Pierre de Marais uh, did a lot of work in this area again, re-excavated many sites and did his PhD. Pierre de Marais became mm -hmm. a professor in archaeology at the University of Brussels and a uh, rector. Um, and he made his PhD on this area mm -hmm. and he was able to outline a chronocultural sequence by which okay. we knew the different periods, let's say. So was the first date by, I forgot the name, what was Nankin. it? Nankin. Was his first sort of approximation more or less right or was it completely out of No, the... it was not so far off. Okay. It's, it's not so far off. But even today we still have problems with this chronology. So okay. it's just that it's uh, it's uh, difficult, let's say. So could you help us picture like picture the scenery of, of where this grave is and also give us a bit more information about the archaeological site itself, like what sort of other I don't know, was there any buildings found there or was it lots of other graves what, what sort of place is it um, so I wasn't there on the excavation okay. but uh, from uh, what was explained and from yeah. the pictures you can see that the, the, the picture the, the graveyard actually because this grave belongs to a big graveyard mm -hmm. um, was uh, just on the edge of Lake Kisale uh, and what you have to imagine is that at that time um, there were no ground probing techniques to, to find uh, things underground without having to excavate. So Pierre de Marais and um, uh, Nankin before, basically at the beginning, they followed what the villagers told them. 
The villagers, they were seeing things when they plowed the fields or when they were on the riverbanks, they would see a grave collapsing on the bank of the lake. And so they told, that's how they were told of the existence of a graveyard there uh, and how the pottery didn't fit with what was known by the local people. Mm -hmm. um, and so what they did was they, they started by making trenches, long trenches, and they started hitting, um, uh, as we say, hitting uh, graves a bit by luck. Mm, no. Now, the interesting thing is that when they excavated that, is that they discovered that basically there, um, there was a lot of differences in these graves. And for instance, um, children's grave were shallow mm -hmm. and contained small material, small vessels, small things. And um, more important people and, more, and older people were, had graves which were dug deeper, deeper and with uh, adult-size uh, offerings. Mm. Um, and in some cases, one wonders if the, the offerings in the graves were not really made for the disease for the event of the uh, of the grave, not okay. as things that were there in daily life. So let's let's talk a bit more then about the objects that are mm. in in the in the grave. Um, so as I understand, you're quite an expert in uh, pottery. Uh, so as a as a person that has uh, no uh, knowledge whatsoever, if I'm looking at the pottery in that grave, what what should I be looking at on on the pots? What should I be? What details should I be paying attention to? Um, the the trick is that basically you can uh, not being a specialist, you can just look at them. And mm -hmm. uh, the best analytical tool of uh, humans is their brain, their eyes. And very often I tell students that they what they should do is look carefully. So you can let your eyes be guided. And later on, the trick of the the expert or the scientist is that once you've looked at things and you have you know, let your mind work on things, then you will go back to that to rationalize it, to discuss it with colleagues or to, to explain it to students. Mm -hmm. But if you look at these vessels, what you should do first is look at them for your own sake. You look at them mm -hmm. with your own eyes and you might very well see things that nobody has seen before. It happens. Uh, in this case, I'm going to give you a hint though, uh, but such hints are a bit difficult because you need to know other things as well. Mm -hmm. But the trick with these vessels is that they're really specific and the way their rims um, are made is really almost unique. That okay. is, um, you could see that there's a, a little angle in the rim. The neck of the vessel is not straight, it's not open. Uh, it makes a sort of little um, angle. Um, also, there are, they are a nice salmon color and the decorations on them are very, very t small. Always used, they use very small tools. Mm -hmm. And they like to make the decoration on a very small part of the vessels, not covering. Okay. You have to imagine that vessels can be decorated and there's no limit to the imagination. So mm -hmm. this, the way they were doing them is very specific and it's typical, typical of this, these people at that period. There's okay. only one area in Africa where you find something similar. Okay. Which is? <laughs> Upper on the Congo River, okay. there is an older style that looks the same. Okay. And the trouble is it's uh, almost 2,000 kilometers away and I haven't got the missing link between. But I'm okay. sure there's a connection. Maybe okay. it's where these people were coming from. But okay. 
So what? So you you just said uh, that these um, vessels were most probably made for the occasion of the funeral, right? Yeah. So what what would have been what what could have been the idea behind needing vessels in a in a grave? Um, that's a bit like the the question <laughs> that comes back all the time. Huh? There's the the notion of afterlife and that the deceased will take things with him. Yeah. Now those are very very general concepts, and it's. I, I'm always a bit afraid it works to explain things like this to people, but at mm -hmm. the same time, it's so general that it blurs the fact that there are much, um, there are a lot of different approaches to death, mm -hmm. and um, in this case, probably we'll never know what they had in mind. Mm -hmm. Now we can play the game, and uh, we see that uh, the vessels that are there um, are a range of things that could be used in daily life. So it's not just about taking one or two as examples. There's really a, an, an, in that grave, there is really an, an, a very large um, panel of objects. Uh, the interesting thing is that some of these objects may have been used to pour uh, beer ritually. They have a special, spe beer. beer. Okay. They have a special, uh, the, they have a little spout that goes under the rim. Mm -hmm. could be used for that. Um, there are large vessels, small vessels that could be used for cooking, uh, for serving food. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, also there are um, objects in these graves, for instance, that speak of things that could have been very important for the people. For instance, you can find in some of these graves braseros, which are in fact you know, vessels in mm -hmm. which you made fire mm -hmm. to cook something, like a barbecue. The trick of these braseros and or barbecues is that they could be used in a canoe. So if you are on the river, mm. you can cook yourself something. So it's interesting that an object like that talks about the river uh, mm -hmm. and relates to people with the, the river. Um, in the same way, one of the very important graves in terms of political items of power and all that um, of the Kisalian time contained some fish hooks. Mm. And one could say that maybe um, uh, the deceased loved fishing. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of indi indications that uh, relate these graves with fishing, with the river, with the river. like the braseros, etc. And so one may speculate if it was not the fishing that was important economically, rather than just as a leisure, let's uh -huh. say. Okay. So that's some of the things that you can discuss when you look at the, the material in graves like in the this. Grave. So what, what else would you say, by, by you looking at this particular grave, what do you learn about Kisaliani uh, culture? Um, the the uh, thing we learn in, the, in this grave is um, that first, uh, the Kisalian culture was um, uh, hierarchized, probably, because you have very wealthy graves and you have very poor graves. And that one is an incredibly wealthy grave. Mm -hmm. In fact, that's why it's there, because it serves as a good example for people to understand um, history in Central Africa. I will come back to that later, probably. Um, but so here, this specific grave teaches us that... Um, uh, very wealthy but young people were buried mm -hmm. that didn't possess uh, items of political power. So there was political power. We have graves where we see that people uh, had objects we relate. We can relate to to important 
um, political power, like parade axes or uh, special objects like that. But this grave doesn't have that. This is a very, very wealthy grave, but with no apparent um, items of political power. The trouble is, of course, that if you look in other parts of the, of the, the room, the history room, you will see that there are, um, uh, for instance, in, there are objects of power of the Luba kingdom, which are mm -hmm. on display. And all these objects, which are related to kings and chiefs, are made of wood. Mm -hmm. or wood and wood decays very fast, it's eaten by termites. So in this grave, it could be that there was, that there was items of power, of political power, mm -hmm. but those have been eaten away. And what's left is just the rest. So it's a skeleton, this grave is a skeleton in more than one way. So is there any particular reason why wood, wood was or what was used for items of political uh, power? Uh, I mean, because, you know, in, in, in my sort of imagination, you'd be using gold or uh, like in, in the stories that I've heard. So why wood? Uh, that's a, tr that's a, a double question here. The first is, it's difficult to know why people select one item over the other mm -hmm. as the most important, the most valuable or the, mm -hmm. most, uh, the most lovely material. Uh, but for instance, you could, I know that in some cases, I'm, I do not know for the objects of Luba power that are in the cases, but I know other instances where, for instance, a, a certain type of wood was selected because it's the type, it's the wood under which circumcision was, is organized. Okay. It's a special wood in the savannah. No one will cut it for... So it's in a, wood a special wood. species of... Yes, tree. it's a okay. special tree. And it serves in the case of circumcision for the ritual. The young circumcised gather under that tree and have all the rituals under that tree. And if you go in the bush to cut tree for firewood, yeah. you never touch these trees. Okay. So you would so see what, that. What's, uh, is there like? Do you have the name of? of no, that I don't. I don't remember it now because it yeah. was a, a long time ago. But um, what you have to know is that simply that would make it a wood that you cannot burn for fire, but you could use it for an item of power, maybe. Uh -huh. So it's just that there are symbols which are hidden between behind a lot of things, yeah. vegetation, objects, and that. And so it's not immediate for a, a new buyer, or, you know, someone coming in. To understand that uh, there is a, a use for a symbol, for instance. Mm -hmm. So in this case, you have to see these objects of power. They are absolutely gorgeous and beautiful as it is in wood. So why make them in any other way? Mm -hmm. um, also, there might be reasons for, um, for them to be that way because they are um, light in transport. They have a use. For instance, a lot of items of power are used uh, in our, um, our, in fact, objects of daily life. Also, a spear. A spear is used for hunting. So you would say, oh, why not make a golden spear? But if you hunt an elephant with a golden spear, mm. you're going to be dead quickly. So there's <laughs> a, a, you could imagine that um, uh, some of, of them are uh, paddles. Mm -hmm. They they are given to chiefs who are who hold important cro uh, river crossings, for instance, and their uh, staff of office will be in the shape of a paddle, an extremely ornate and beautiful paddle. Mm -hmm. But the, the natural material for paddles was wood. So maybe there's simply a, a material connection with these things. That doesn't prevent, you could say, but it's easy in other societies to make such objects of gold. But you have to know that in Central Africa, gold was never interesting. Mm. So that's one of the main thing with that grave is that it allows people to understand that 
In the past, be it in Europe, America, South America or Africa, people lived differently and had different beliefs sometimes. And so, for instance, while a lot of people think gold is the universal measure of wealth, it's not the case. Mm -hmm. And for Central Africa, the two metals which were seen as the most important was iron and copper. And copper, okay. And this grave is full of iron and copper. Okay, so your, your job as an archaeologist is to look just as much at what is there and what might not be there. That's the frustrating part, is that you always have to bear in mind that what you see is what's left. And so, even though you can't spin tales on what is not there, mm -hmm. you can still tell stories bearing in mind that it could be only part of the story. And that's important. And so for you, what, uh, why is it important for you to have this grave displayed in the museum? Well, I thought it was crucial uh, for two reasons. One was the fact that, as I told you in the previous exhibitions, children loved it. And I mm -hmm. thought I was looking for things to please people. So that was one thing. The other thing was that I wanted also to answer people and some of the queries. And one of these answers, um, one of the questions that always comes back is, is there anything to find in Central Africa? And so that was a good way of showing on display a, a rich grave. Now, the trouble is that in the past, someone told me once that this was probably a very poor grave because there was no gold in it. And mm. so I thought, I have to show this one because also it's a good example of how you can be misled or mistaken if you so think... So for this particular grave, they said, oh, that must be a really poor grave. Exactly. Okay. Whereas it's a young adult which is covered with iron rings and copper. You have to imagine, for instance, that we have an example in the 1950s of a ritual where an old man is mm -hmm. buying a hereditary title into a society. He's going to have that title for himself and all his descendants. Okay. You imagine he's going to be a duke in Europe okay. or a count. Yeah. And all his descendants are going to be dukes and counts as well. And in the basket in front of him, there are seven iron rings. Seven. Okay. In this grave, there There's are so tens and yeah. tens. Of, plus so bracelets, plus plus, plus, yeah. <laughs> plus, plus, plus. Yeah. So in fact, you have to see this grave, not as a poor grave, but as a Central African Tutankhamen. Okay. It's a massively wealthy grave of a young adult. Mm -hmm. It's completely different. So I thought it would be nice to show that to people. And, and just so to understand better, like mm. what, um, like how much effort goes into making a bracelet, like those bracelets, just to, to understand mm. the compared to compare it with something that we would buy today, a ring that we would buy today, or. It's not the, the fact that it's not expensive. In, in truth, uh, iron smithing, uh, the making of iron objects in Central Africa, was uh, they had reached a, a really important technical level. So they were really great specialists. But it's not that really the, the issue with this. It's because it connects, iron is connected to a divine magical power. Mm -hmm. And it's this connection that people crave for when they, they, dis, they use or display iron objects. It's because there's a certain magic in turning earth into shiny uh, cutting objects, let's say. And I, I witnessed it once, uh, the smelting of iron. It's mm -hmm. awesome. And it's true that when you see the, the result, you are 
it's difficult not to think of magic, you know. Uh-huh. So it's a good magical thing. It's a good uh, thing to speak about and to make symbols about. That's mm-hmm. for sure. But when people were using iron and where they connect, the wealth, you know, you can't really say that it costs a lot to have an iron ring. It's more the important, symbolic importance of okay. iron that's in play, mm-hmm. I think. And as a, as a last uh, question, mm-hmm. uh, a bit of a random one, Uh, if you could actually uh, have a, a one-question conversation with the skeleton inside this grave, if you could ask him one question, him or her, what what would you ask them? I would, I would have to think about it carefully because <laughs> <clears throat> my initial uh, my initial question would probably be, who are you? Hoping that he will start a discussion because uh, if I hear only his... Uh, surname then I'll be I'll be a bit short but um, uh, what were you doing in life maybe mm. what made you so important but I think that and, and also it'd be interesting to know if he's a boy or a girl <laughs> more simply <laughs> Yeah, which which you might be finding out quite yes. soon. Yeah. So we'll be we'll be looking out for that. Yeah. Thank you very much, Alexander. That was super interesting. You're welcome. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Africa Museum podcast. When does heavy international trade become detrimental to a tree species? In the next episode, we go into the Congolese rainforest with forest management expert Nils Borland to find out about sustainable forest management and aphromosia, which is a particularly sought-after tree species. This series is brought to you by the Royal Museum for Central Africa in Belgium, which is a museum and a cross-disciplinary scientific institution with over 80 scientists from biology, earth sciences and social sciences conducting research on Africa and its heritage around the world.